Hey, you're listening to Tech Talks with Lou and I'm Lou Temlett. I hope you're having a good day and I'm really thankful for you listening. So this is Tech Talks with Lou, the show in which I discuss the top tech secrets for success from the best in today's digital world. Last week, I spoke with Darren Shaw, psychologist and drum and bass entrepreneur, having the end in mind and becoming an early entrepreneur in his own right, as well as using his Rastafarian culture of consciousness. If you haven't already listened, head back after this episode and let me know what you think. My guest today is an incredible inspiration in the immersive, interactive and performative technologies. They are a master in the creative arts with a deep consideration for ecology and environment, as well as using super clever sensors and visualization, bringing humans together with data. I'd like to welcome Mike Phillips, Professor of Interdisciplinary Arts at University of Plymouth. Hi, Mike. How are you? Hi, Lou. Thank you. I'm good. Thank you. (laughs) You need need to go to that University of Plymouth, Plymouth University thing. (laughs) <laughs> yes. So um, I was, a, I was, a, Mike was my lecturer back in 1995, uh, whilst I was studying a Bachelor of Science Media Lab Arts. And the University of Plymouth was the Plymouth University. So it was, now it's officially yeah. University of Plymouth. I stand corrected. <laughs> <laughs> Vice chancellors have to have something to do. Change the name. It's one of them. <laughs> and I'm really sad that the potato print um, kind of stamp has gone as well, Mike. On the side of the building, yeah. Yeah. It is It is sad. Sadness. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> we reminisce. We'll, we'll continue to reminisce. Through it, was a bowl, it was a bowling ball. It had those three uh, – it was supposed to be Drake's bowling ball or something. Ah, oh, yes. Legend had it. <laughs> I liked, I particularly liked the orange. That suited me well. Mm. Yeah, unfortunately, they made all the uh, graduation gowns the same orange, which is it's just a little too much. It's kind of brick orange colour, yeah. <laughs> That's all fabulous. So um, we're here to talk about creative arts and technology and how clever things were and still are, um, as well as kind of reminiscing partly on my university journey, Mike, um, as well as, you know, loving being by the sea in Plymouth, uh, which is on the southwest coast of England. And um, yeah, just the whole education and university experience. So where did the creative arts and the the kind of technology begin for you, Mike? Well, I, yeah, I, I did a fine art course back in like 80 something, 82 maybe is when I did my undergraduate degree, it, actually in Exeter. And there they, I started out doing kind of, I guess technology, but it was like building your own tools to do sculptural stuff. And, then I, I got into an area called 4D, which was, you know, there was there was painting. It, it just happened to be the say that 4D was the number of, on the door, but it was 4D and animation. <laughs> it was time-based arts, I guess. And uh, that was uh, re- run by a great guy called Mike Bartlett, who um, sadly died, uh, was it last year, I think? And um, he, uh, he'd actually come to dealing with these technologies, which was basically pneumatic videotape, you know, the stuff you had to cut yeah. as if it was audio t- 
tape back in the day. Um, he'd come to it from the stained glass work that he was doing at the Royal College of Art. And it was something to do with the projected quality of the light coming through those uh, the, that stained glass, which I think changed his awareness of um, sort of like two dimensions into three, but then into this kind of temporal model of things. And that was using, I got my ZX81 back then, and which was quite cool. I, I remember it well. It was my, my days of being taught how to program on the thing. Yeah. Kind of very early days. But it was, I, I, I remember dreaming in basic uh, while I was doing that. And that was really quite transformative. It was like literally was poetry. And I think that awareness of what code is, is just kind of yeah. lingered on. Um but re- I, I, yeah, I did had sort of like lots of. They weren't quite sensors, but they were interactive physical things that moved and stuff. And and, and there were some ecological monitors that I built at that time. But the um, really when I when I did my postgraduate stuff at the Slade School of Art, that was when I, I started working with a guy called Roy Ascot, who um, still sort of do. He's just retired from the university, but um, that was doing telematic stuff, networking stuff. Um, which was uh, really quite, again, quite quite inspirational and revolutionary in terms of the art world because it wasn't about the objet d'art at all. It was, you know, there's these things that people commoditize and sell as paintings or, or sculptures, but it was actually this flow of data, you know, communications yeah. became the art form. And that, uh, so the way you could destroy an object and have all of these other things uh, attached to it became, I guess, the material that I started to work with at that at that time, um, which uh, w- was great. And that's what I think, you know, everything else has followed on from that that time. That's that's very cool. So I I um, I remember applying to be at university, Mike, and whilst I felt like I didn't quite achieve the A-levels to match up to the point system back in the late 90s, um, I remember coming for an interview and going, here's my portfolio, here's my creative artwork. Um, And I can't remember talking much about technology, but I also remember going away that summer and then getting my results for my A-levels and then thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm a point short. What am I going to do? So um, I think at that point, obviously, that, you know, I hadn't been accepted on the course. I'm going, okay, I haven't been accepted. I'm one point down. What am I going to do? What's my contingency and backup plan? And what I did in that summer was apply to join the army. Whoa. It was was incredibly severe. And I'm like, I'm not going to make it to university. What's my backup plan? And I, I, I did some kind of army training kind of a couple of years before, but there was just nothing else in my mindset of what could I do? I hadn't kind of stepped back to go, okay, well, maybe I can do this and maybe I can study this. So it was a complete, I'm not going to get in. I'm going to go and join the army. Um, but um, obviously, when I got the call to say that I was accepted on the course, I had such relief, <laughs> beyond relief, that I didn't have to go and join the army. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the army were quite pleased about that as well. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> 
But it was a, it was an incredible start, and obviously, so many of us joining Media Lab Arts as a, a kind of Bachelor of Science. So there's there's a thing for me about joining a Bachelor of Science degree that it felt like it had more kind of weight in the world over an arts degree, and would give me a more kind of rounded experience. And and I'm not sure whether they're still called thick sandwich courses anymore, Mike. You'll have to enlighten me. <laughs> but that meant that I spent a year working in industry. And I felt like that was my best opportunity to um, engage in the work world as well as have an education to support all of that. Um, so I had four wonderful years, loads of cool creative stuff that I still talk about very fondly now. Um, but what's it like for students coming into the university um, system now from your perspective? <laughs> difficult because I mean don't tell anyone but I actually haven't got the qualifications to uh, actually be on the undergraduate course that I ran well I did uh, I did well I, yeah I, I got two E's at A level and then I did a foundation course in in fine art so in art and yeah. um, and that <laughs> sort of gave me an equivalence but I didn't even have I don't think I've got O-level maths or which is kind of like a prerequisite for everything in the world yeah nowadays so what so in one sense I think um it is harder now to get in because you've been metricized you know students have been metricized so much and it's right the way through the education system that they yeah they, they maybe they don't they don't take the risks that um they they should do uh or could do you know because it's yeah. you're just kind of not aware of it it's just sort of frightening now i think because you you know if you if you think you haven't got the points then you won't even try but in fact uh we we always have had the idea that certainly with that course that you did that it was um if if you thought you wanted to do it then it probably wasn't right for you it was it was you needed to sort of fall into it because it wasn't about um sort of prerequisite stuff at all the the, the technologies yeah. that you were exploring with there, there were no models there, there was you know that direct career pathway hadn't even been sorted out for you so you you couldn't you wouldn't know what you wanted to do and, yeah. I, and that's still you know in one sense that's still the problem because you don't do what we do at school you know you might do a little bit of coding but if you do it's yeah. something horrible in you know Microsofty type stuff and so that yeah that's that's one thing is actually getting into university now and uh, but the, uh, the, the, the the still the sandwich course the industrial placement is is still very critical um not as many students do it as you might think um oh. and that's partly because i think they there's um there's so much money you're, you're shelling out you know for those for those three years yeah the idea is to get to finish and get out there but actually i totally agree with you that placement year that industrial placement year has transformed so many people uh yeah. it means that when they come back for that final year i mean there's two things that generally happens one is they they either hated working in industry and thought oh my god this is my last <laughs> chance of, of freedom and uh, then stay in education forever yes some of, some of us true. did of course yes yeah. <laughs> very very sensible um or you had a fantastic time but also you think well this is this is the last chance that i'm just going to be able to be totally experimental yeah and the biggest fear is when students come and they go right that's what i want to be i want to do that 
and therefore I'm not going to do all this other stuff because that's the thing I want to do. And it, that is really quite tragic because you, how do you know, uh, you know, when you come on a course in the first place that, that, that what the output would be three years later, everybody changes. And, yes. and I, I think probably one of the, one of the problems with, the packaging that happens at, uh, at through school is that kids come out with the idea that this is the thing that I, I am. Uh, whereas, yeah, I certainly have no idea when I grow up, I don't know what I'm going to be. And there's a, that, that sort of means that the horizons close down, but they close their own horizons down pretty quickly because uh, yes. they want to be a gamer or they want to write code or the, and I mean, you know, as as you know, you move through these different kind of periods of. I mean, I haven't. I've seen it in Plymouth for years, but there's there's Most a sense of, Yeah, <laughs> but I also haven't seen the thing that I wanted to do somewhere else. Whereas actually, it's always yeah. been something new, like with the immersive vision theatre that we have and things. These are all like takes at least two or three years to build something. Yeah. And you can either build them to build all these things in the same place or you can move around to different places. And it, ultimately, as long as you keep on building these things, it's um, it doesn't matter where you do it. But, um, yeah. I think it's, it's an interesting concept because, obviously, I've got my two young children and, you know, I'm starting to talk to them about what they want to do. Mm. Um, and, you know, they're kind of saying podcaster or they're, you know, saying what mummy does and photography and all those sorts of other things. Um, but it's about having that open mind as well. And I, I remember as a child always wanting to be a teacher, but then there was that conflict of um, education and uh, exposure to the world and you know, and I, and obviously all of those things happen in, in any kind of aspect, but mm -hmm. to have your mind open to different career paths rather than a, a fixed route is really quite inspirational um, and eye-opening to, uh, you know, feel like you're in a, a much wider world than a specific yes. route, um, which, you know. It's true. The, I mean, if you, I, I don't know how... It's really interesting because because we we have an education system here which is increasingly kind of turned into a silo that you move from one thing to the other. If you were to come into the UK education system from outside of it, how you would then navigate this thing is quite extraordinary. So I think the thing to do is to build in those defence mechanisms into the system to realise that it's it is just one system that people are, are kind of monetizing in some way. And that's yeah. why it's like it is. It doesn't have to be like that. And actually, you can you can move around your life much more kind of in a much more agile way. You just have to be a little braver, I think. <laughs> no. Yeah, definitely, definitely yeah. braver to take mm. certain steps and and um, kind of you know feel the fear and do it anyway. Yeah, um, which certainly throughout my my life and challenging and doing new things and moving to new places um you know bring it on uh you know life life is for living but um i'm incredibly um you know grateful for the time at university because i still draw on some of those things we were we were talking before the interview about macromedia director and uh, all of those uh you know software packages that now don't exist anymore Extinct to produce software, multimedia yeah. and yeah. multimedia assets 
but some of those really good uh, kind of structures and, and systems and the kind of network, the object-orientated design and mm-hmm. development um, and using things to make other things happen and analyse data and, and integrate humans with that. Um, so you've been working on a number of interesting projects from a kind of environmental and ecological sense with data and humans. Tell me a bit more about some of some of that inspiration and, and what you've been doing. I suppose, uh, I mean, I st- actually was doing some kind of environmental, uh, you reminded me just talking about that, the, these sensor things that I was building, which were kind of kinetic sculptures, which just used the environment to, to trigger them. Um, and I guess I, kind of looking back at, my undergraduate that is also where a lot of the stuff which was hugely inspired by by other kind of artists and and journals like leonardo journal which is a a fantastic kind of art science journal um all of those kind of interactive things you can see the those sort of um early kind of iterations of ideas that you couldn't possibly build at the time but now with these technologies you, you can quite easily and so actually the one of the projects, which I still think is is really successful, was the um, ArcOS system, which was a, in one sense, was a an intelligent building system, but but was designed to make the inhabitants of the building more intelligent, uh, and it used basically a the kind of BMS system, the, the BIM system, building information management system, which most uh, buildings now have all the time, but back then large buildings had in the Portland Square building where we worked in, we managed to persuade the powers that be to let us build this sort of subsystem into that physical building. And that was intended to, as I said, make people more intelligent about their own behaviours within the space. And part of that was to allow them to see their ecological impact on that building by revealing all of the kind of... um, you know, the energy use, the water usage of this stuff, all of which is readily available, but is kept in a kind of Excel spreadsheet that only the engineers know about. So how can you take responsibility for for yourself and your actions if you can't actually see these things? So it was making those things visible and transparent um, and building artworks around them, which was quite cool. And we, then we use that model then to develop um, – to, to use this operating system idea to work with bodies, social contexts, uh, and the environment. And there was quite a cool project we did, which used um, it, kind of very cheap environmental sensors that were networked using early Zigbee technology, which meant you could create a mesh network around a space. So rather than having a very expensive um, environmental sensor, you know, they're, they're about at least two thousand pounds and you know, earth scientists have them they stick them on the side of a hill yep. in a massive landscape we we use lots of little sensors which were all connected and you could have about 10 of them around a school or you know in, in a kind of area in a village and that would generate data uh, which you could then visualize and kids would making films and things about it in in full dome environments and things it was great fun but the yeah. really key thing was that the data that it was getting was not calibrated and all the scientists were going oh you can't that's not good you you need to have the data calibrated but the difference was that as soon as these numbers were coming in which were approximate weren't quite right they were different from 10 different sensors this kind of granularity yeah. that you've got students and the teachers and the kind of you know the community groups were going well what what does this actually mean and mm. you know how do i what do i do with this 
rather than this kind of top-down model of this is the temperature in this space, it yeah. was a, it created a series of questions and tried to turn that data yeah. into an experience, which I think was really quite enlightening because you realize that actually scientists – no, they know loads of stuff, but um, <laughs> they, they, there is no consensus about what this stuff is. I mean, the, the, we work with uh, people who work with sensors, you know, the instrumentalists, and we also work with with a scientists who use um, like uh, kind of uh, diary records or the sort of when people heard the first cuckoo, you know, they write it inside their shed and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's human data. And uh, the instrumentalists call that data, call human data, dirty data, because it's somehow lesser than the data that mm. they've got collected by this instrument. So that is a really interesting discourse to get involved with because you realize that um, you realize the institutional nature of this thing called science you know it's, yeah. i mean if you ever got a, a theoretical physicist with an experimental physicist in the same room that they, they have a honestly that they just argue <laughs> with each other it's it's, it's they have, they're, they're different concepts of reality is is yeah. so extreme and that they have they call themselves physicists and you go well it's not it's so actually your ability to negotiate through all of these different disciplines domains and territories is is really i think what our our environmental credentials <laughs> do yeah. and, and currently that's with the impact lab the um which which is with uh, collaboration across Exeter, run by Exeter university with plymouth the plymouth college of art um the met office looking at data in the southwest and that, that's a erdf funded project which is which is great because it's really dealing with real people and their data real companies mm. trying to do something with that data um it sounds very inspirational that it's a you know a kind of bottom-up approach in terms of yeah. the structure and the uh, okay so my mind's kind of working in you know uh, the scientists have got these amazing columns of data and then you've got human data that kind of is a bit wiggly and doesn't quite conform to their their kind of structure so it's kind of a you know trying to mesh in the middle and yes. and meet because it's it's saying something but it, it's aligning with those same rows and columns that you yeah know, and humans, it, you know it's, humans it's, can't impart on you, uh, yeah structure <laughs> well you need evidence-based research but you also need to turn that evidence into an experience that somebody can actually feel and you know we've been looking at all of this stuff on the pandemic these uh, the, the data sets and you go us ah, 175,000 people have died that's is that big i don't know it's like and you just see these charts and you somehow yeah. you it's removed from that you know that personal yeah experience of of the of the people in this thing so there's i think humans have a a, a great have a really it's probably a survival technique of being able to go all right that's data i'll put that over there in that box yes i'll yeah. carry on <laughs> doing what i'm doing um and so to to breach that kind of you know blood brain barrier is, is yes. really important and yes. a lot of the stuff we do actually is using um scientific mechanisms like the we we have this immersive we did you ever use the immersive vision theater back then it's probably it was the old planetarium still i would yes i think then. it was kind of kicking around i'm not yeah. really uh, I th yeah yeah but that had been a 
since 67 it was built and it was really it was designed to allow oh yes i remember it now okay so i had i had i had to just move from from the city in my mind and the university to the the where the lighthouse is in plymouth and the coast and i and yes i do remember the plantain (laughs) it's lovely taking me back yeah (laughs) it's a great thing and we've now it's now digital uh used to be an old zeiss starball in there but we've um we, we, we're working on revamping it again, so we've got a really cool projection system in there. But it used to be a planetarium to teach uh, all the uh, naval cadets about navigating by the stars. And, of course, nobody looks up anymore. They just use their GPS devices. <laughs> yes. And it kind of just became slightly redundant. And we, we managed to get funding to redevelop it, uh, some more funding to redevelop it again. Uh, but really, the it, 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 part of what we've been doing is kind of hacking those um, those STEM subjects by taking their instruments and doing really cool stuff with it. So we've sort of liberated the dome for artists and designers to work with. Um, and it, it's effectively the same kind of production flow as making immersive VR stuff. It's just yeah. a kind of shared virtual reality. And that, and again, that, using environmental data in those kind of, in that kind of space is, is really cool. You're listening to Tech Talks with Lou, and I'm talking with Mike Phillips, Professor of IDAT at the University of Plymouth. We, I mean, we have really, I think, quite significant international reach with the work that we do and uh, have always done that with Roy Ascot and the Planetary Collegium, which literally was, you know, it's a PhD spread across the planet. Uh, yeah. that, that was really quite, you know, massively liberating conceptually uh, and also, you know, a big challenge to the university, which is all about estates, um, how you how you become nomadic in it, with that knowledge and those experiences but the the, the what, what's interesting i think about plymouth is that it, it you know it has this kind of slightly very dubious history of <laughs> kind of imperialist uh, <laughs> colonialism but it, it, it in a sense there's this it's it's so far from anywhere else in the uk it's not as far as Falmouth yeah. is but it's so far that uh, when we when i first came there it, it, we had this um satellite uplink which was amazing from a European Space Agency satellite uplink, which we used to do TV broadcasts from with people like Brian Eno and and Roy Ascot. And oh yeah, I, I remember from, the big. Yeah. I remember the big satellite dishes outside. Yeah, one of the buildings. That, that was right. Yeah, Scott Building, back of the Scott yes, Building. That's it. Yeah. yeah, that that allowed us to broadcast all over the the world. You could piggyback on other satellite links as well. So you suddenly had this again, like with the work I was doing with Roy. Of the Slade, which was all this telematic stuff, you you had these incredible sense of okay, we're here in Plymouth, but it, it literally is th- this global reach that you can have mm. through just by tweaking your your mindset a bit. So yeah, it's it's I think Plymouth is an interesting place because it's where you know it's it's where a lot of things left. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it was quite yeah. inspirational back in back in the kind of nineties for that to happen, and I think you know there were lots of impressive, um, you know, uh, assets and lots of impressive things going on within that time that I felt like not really many people knew about. Yeah, only the good ones. We well, it, it that is really interesting because I, you know, I went to an art school that was uh, Exeter College of Art, which is which is what was absorbed into the university and is now the Faculty of Arts. 
Um, but that was it was 40 miles away in Exeter. And it was a real I mean, I'd, I'd experienced this at the Slade where actually you know, I was able to work with the computing department and you could wander into um, physics lectures and things. I mean, I had a wonderful experience of just sort of, oh, I'll go and see a physics lecture today. And it was in these very old tiered sort of curved uh, lecture theatres that they had. Mm. And um, towards, you know, it's like, oh, it's interesting about kind of quarks or something. I don't know, it was just kind of a really interesting lecture. And then suddenly this guy runs in towards the end of the lecture and goes, oh, Professor, Professor Marx, there's a, we've, it's, we've just found it. And it was like, what, what have you found? We found this, um, uh, this, this planet somewhere, you know, there's a planet there. We found it. We got the data on it. And everyone was really excited about this. So he was like, what's going on? This is, this is like <laughs> knowledge happening now, you know, and of course most stuff that you do in art college, the knowledge is art history, I guess, yeah. from the yeah. practice. And you became aware of what a university could be if you step outside of your boundaries. And mm. one of the great things about Plymouth back then was that although, you know, you, you lot were in a faculty of, of technology it was kind of uh, we'd colonized it with all these arts practices yes (laughs) so we we were able to give you kind of your creative practitioners access to all of these really cool things that are normally outside of your the frame that you operate within within an art college Mm -hmm. and that that was i think really quite interesting and i mean the downside of that now is that it's all about the academicization of art colleges rather than art colleges changing uh institutions i mean they are actually that they're, they're, they're really quite porous and, and liberating in terms of the work that we're doing with with this, yeah. the immersive vision theater for instance that's run that's a planetarium it's not it's an omniarium but it's a planetarium run by artists which is as it should be i think but um that that shift of, of being able to escape the art college to engage with these other disciplines is is what was was what was great about Plymouth, um, yes, and probably a lot of polytechnic ex polytechnics back then. They they, you know, they 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 were very pragmatic in the way that they dealt with the world, um, and that allowed them to not be so siloed as many uh, traditional universities are. Yeah, still are. Yeah, I mean, I I you know really enjoyed my time. It was a it was the best mix of creative arts future thinking you know we were we were coding in you know doing vr stuff you know ar was kind of in the mix but this is Mm. the late 90s and it it feels now that it's only kind of in realization um and certainly the object orientated and the kind of data flows and the human aspect um it feels like the world is caught up a little from our very inspirational um kind of university years um, which you know, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that. Those were kind of rehearsals, I think, for what what's happening now. But that this yeah. this again is a rehearsal for something else. And it oh. again that international aspect of the course with with you know bumping up into people like Roy Ascot and you think we had people like Shar Davis. Uh, yes. You know, it was doing a PhD with us, and she was like the kind of um, gold standard of of uh, VR. Back in the nineties, um, you, you needed a silicon graphics re- reality engine to deliver the stuff stuff that yes. you can now do on a mobile phone. But it was um, yeah. that that was that was the kind of templating that was going, on. and also the access to these kind of knowledge sets, mm. international kind of experiences, different modes of working, 
um, yeah. all of which I think really are extremely valuable in terms of challenging kind of orthodoxies and um, and just sort of comfortable assumptions about things. And that, yeah. that yeah, that and that was always great as well with uh, being in a in a school of computing. I think probably I I had more conversations about art. Some of them not that illuminating, but, but more com- <laughs> more kind of challenging conversations about art in a computing department. Yeah, and you probably do in a in an art department. Um, yes, yeah, certainly. I, I can't see that the kind of the top down computing kind of necessarily falling into the art world. But when you talk about you know though that time was kind of a rehearsal for now, and that's a really interesting concept, and I think one that you know resonates with me quite a lot you know there's been lots of rehearsal times throughout my life and now things are starting to kind of come into play and to not see um you know what you're doing as the end goal that that there's more and there's greater and there's you know more expertise to kind of come Um, and it's not the perfect thing in that moment um, it's kind of where, you know, what I'm drawing from from that time. Um, and I think some of us felt like, you know, the coding and the projects and the development, you know, if it wasn't just so, then, you know, it was a, a massive deal. But actually, it it wasn't. It was just a rehearsal. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it, um, th- th- I think that you can see there are so many examples of, of students going out on those industrial placements who were terrified and... <laughs> And probably they had good reason to be, but when they got there, the people that they were, even the most sophisticated uh, uh, kind of companies that they might have gone and worked in, did not mm. were not as up to date in their thinking and skill sets as you know, it was uh, Nick. Um, I second, I know he was in um, IBM. Who uh, I think he failed his. Uh, his second year Java stuff managed oh, to get, I don't know how we got into IBM because they do those, uh, <laughs> those kind of profiling things to get yes. you in. Yeah. yeah. And he, uh, he, he got in and he transformed the way they thought about IOT stuff because he was doing all this Arduino stuff, which they, they just hadn't quite got their head around yet. Yeah. And he was able to put things together and make these new kind of things for them. And they just realized that they were just, they, they'd just been so blinkered uh, in what they were doing. And they were just getting into IoT stuff. They, they were just doing their kind of MQTT stuff. And it just took to it like a, you know, fish to water. And it um, transformed there. We then managed to get a sponsorship uh thing from them and that was really really cool and it was simply because he was just brave enough to go i'll give it a bash and yeah kind of broke in and um you know did did cool stuff it's uh I, i think the bravery thing you know really was instilled in all of us you know there was that dream of of going out and you know earning thousands in your very first job you know we all were quite you know, like we can do this. Um, And it was such a a wonderful way to um, kind of leave university. And whilst that might not have been the reality, certainly for me, you know, there was that expectation and potential over and above a kind of very rigid kind of career path. Um, And certainly for me, within the first couple of years, I doubled my salary twice. But if that hadn't have been the case and there hadn't have been that discussion that actually we were quite instrumental beings in the world and we were learning cool technology and um, just being mixing the creative and technology, I wouldn't have been where I am today. Mm. 
So I'm I'm kind of incredibly grateful for that inspiration. Um, you know, it was challenging, but um, you know, uh, well, I, nobody, I think you know, yeah, nobody had any idea about what we were doing. Actually, that was a great thing about it. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was. Um, well, I mean, we did because we knew that what we were doing was um, was changing, I think. And I think a lot of problems is that and it, it, institutions are forced to fix, lock things down. Yeah. But that was another great thing about um, computing was that it it changed. Like, you know, it was just evolving. It was incredibly yeah. um, ferocious in the way that it was changing. And so you, you compare it with, with kind of historians and, you know, the way an historian – learns about the past whereas technology's subjects were trying to learn about the future and keep up with the now in order to to be in the future and um that was that's what was really cool about it and it it was very um there was a lot of competition as well with other areas other kind of places like um you know the uh, well the, the work Carleon was quite good, which uh, Roy was at. There were some really cool people mm. came out of there, like the Ninja Tunes people, Matt Black and and, and uh, Rob Pepperell, who I'd worked with. They were doing great stuff, and there was a sense of um, who's doing the coolest thing, maybe just with director, but who's changing the way these things are working. That, yeah, that was really cool. But then I, I remember kind of in the very early days, like conversations with people at conferences going, oh, we've got a CD-ROM printer. And I go, well, I'm in a <laughs> school of computing. We've got like 50. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I grew up in a very technology-led household. Um, and even today, there's like solar panels and uh, air source heat pumps and, mm-hmm. you know, monitoring and money back from here, there and everywhere. Um, but, you know, I... I kind of was up to date with technology. I remember my father buying me, you know, maybe two or three computers throughout the course of that, um, you know, the four years um, and kind of coming along with a great big rock laptop that weighed an absolute ton, but it could burn CDs. It could do this, that, and yeah. the other, you know, all of that thing. I wanted to be part of that initiative and inspiration at the, at the kind of cutting edge of, of technology and what was possible. I didn't want that technology to hold me back from the kind of creative process. Um, and I, I fell kind of quite comfortably more back into the kind of corporate world. Um, but it didn't stop that inspirational thinking and the possibility of of what could be with technology. But there, there's a sense, something I kind of, you know, fight against in, in higher education is is the siloing of uh, of subjects, you know, like... Um, I came from fine art, so it's, this is a criticism yeah. of fine art because I think it, was, it is really liberating. But there's a sense of uh, holding on to your discipline, uh, uh, it, which is right across the board in institutions. They're so competitive, so siloed, yeah. the money attached to them. Uh, but it, you know, that's a preservation thing. But also the mindsets it generates in terms of the knowledge sets that they have as well is is really quite shocking and not being open to things. Um, yes. Uh... So if any of my listeners are interested in going to university or starting a new career in kind of tech and digital, um, what is your advice for them going into this this field if that's something that, you know, they might be inspired by? I do our course, I guess, would be the 
<laughs> we can uh, we can get get the sales in. Sorry, it's it's not on sales. Yeah. It costs it costs so much. Um, <laughs> There's my corporate mind. I mean, I was very fortunate, obviously, not to have the university fees, but uh, they're they're quite yeah. significant, and it's a massive investment. Um, it is from a financial. I, I not I'm not yeah I'm it's it's frightening and hugely critical of of this kind of thing that we found ourselves in um, and it it's taken a long time I mean it it is extraordinary what you know I did my fine art course and I think there were five students in my area uh, and by the time I came back to do some teaching there were fifty students that I was teaching so that yeah. that, kind of, that was like over five years. It had grown massively, um, and it's kind of stabilised a bit now. But then, you know, the budget cuts within within art and design. I mean, it, it's it's uh, quite. Um, I mean, I could my sort of professorial hat with my University of Plymouth thing on is that oh, uh, higher education is basically. But actually, I don't think there's a very good alternative for it. So I, I think yeah, actually, right now, but I, I think down the down the road there may be some very interesting challenges to the idea of of what um you know education is and i think i i look forward to that because i think there's uh some of the assumptions that universities make need to be massively challenged and things like the planetary yeah. collegium really did that you know it, it was more nomadic than than other areas and people were really challenging some of the domains that people that, that, that were assumed were the right way to do things so that that's fantastic in terms of um if you were going to university now, I think it's uh, it's that kind of openness of the course that you're doing, the kind of idea. Obviously, people move into areas because they're fascinated by it, and that's what they should do. They should definitely follow their heart, but yeah. they should make sure that the course that they're that they're mapping onto has that kind of flexibility to not just be the, the thing on the name of the tin. I think you need to be more than that. Uh, yeah. So. You know, a course which is maybe like graphic design, there's it's a hugely competitive area that you move into. So if you go into that area, you want to make sure that it offers you the flexibility to to explore different kinds of applications of that graphic design that is actually caters for your your interests rather than it telling you the way that things have to happen. Yeah, I think that's really fundamental. Um, that opportunity to grow within an area and to move across different areas. I mean, the yeah. technology thing I think is is fundamental. You know, it, it's. I mean, but then also it shouldn't just be they've got bigger computers. That course has got more or better computers than that course because technology changes every three years. You know, and, and there's there'll be by the time you yeah. get into the second year, this place you're at now will have better computers. So that's not the point. It's that kind of openness and that kind of agility to think yeah. about these technologies and to be able to future proof yourself. That's fundamental. Yeah. Although, you know, for me, technology is an absolute draw. So if they had better kit, then I'd be going there. I, I remember yeah. choosing my A-levels and having to um, decide which which kind of school to go to. And one had the wooden the wooden desks that lifted up and the others had computers. So it was an, a no contest. I was with the technology, yeah. um, even though the, the academic, um, you know, um, awards of of the other were were higher, but um, it's always about the kit for me. Technology well, and, yeah. uh, and you, kit. you do need access. <laughs> Absolutely, you do need access. There's there's you know the fighting over the uh, BBC Model B um, 
computer in the in the <laughs> classroom is is crazy. But um, but I think you also want to think about uh, the kind of flexibility of that stuff. I mean, we, we've kind of invested in a whole load of immersive tech and fabrication stuff, which is really transforming things because it's breaking down some of those barriers between. Um, you know, architecture and, and design, or yeah. you, you, you sort of give, um, you enable uh, typographers to be able to create typography in uh, virtual spaces that trans- tra- transforms what typography is. And that's really good. So, um, that and that, but that kind of investment is happening in many institutions, but you just got to make sure that the staff. That have suddenly me given these massive toys. I actually, know what to do with them. It's, um, mm. it's that can be an assumption, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I was incredibly grateful to um, be part of the Media Lab journey. Um, you know, kind of as diverse as you know, being in a, a film TV studio down in Plymouth, or you know, interested in architecture, and as well as all the heuristics and uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, business side of things. Um, and robotics and VR. I mean, it was such a vast um, kind of well-equipping course that, um, you know, absolutely re- a kind of 360 rehearsal for me that I've been able to jump off in all of those different different areas. And I think, you know, making decisions that support you with all of those dimensions that you might have interest in is, is a good place to go. Um, so what's next for you, Mike? Your, your professor, yeah, your your professor, your. Uh... <laughs> well, that's it. There isn't. <laughs> there, is there anything? That, I think that's it. Yeah, it's like yeah. No, I, I'm. Um, yeah, I, I'm. We have this horrible thing at uh, higher education called the REF, the Research Excellence Framework, which which happens every five years, and we've just finished mm-hmm. that the last five years, and they're just about to make their their edicts and judgments and thing. But there's a there's a sense that you uh, you try really hard to to play the institutional game and to get the grants in, get the research yeah. outputs, and and you kind of keep doing that, and you sort of realize after a bit that it feels a little bit hollow, that you're just chucking stuff out to hit the criteria. Yeah. So right now I'm sort of I've got a couple of uh, full dome projects on. We, we we have this amazing thing in in Plymouth now uh, called the Devonport Market Hall, which is a um, Super cool. I mean, it's, it's a great kind of digital hub for a co space. It's run by a Real Ideas, uh, it's just kind of social, uh, creative social organization. Um, and uh, we've worked with them for quite a while and managed to persuade Lindsay Hall, the CEO of, of the place, to go to uh, Montreal to a, a place called SAT, the Society of Art and Technology, who built this dome like when was it 2009 or something they built this thing and it's it's um it's a massive dome but it's also got a flat floor so it's used not by science stuff but for artists and performers and kind of raves and vj stuff and we we did a fantastic project there with uh researchers from all over the place from different disciplines called the european mobile dome lab it was really super cool stuff and that place was amazing and that has become the model for this new dome that we have here in Plymouth. So we've now got sort of a production flow from our immersive media labs through the immersive vision theater into this market hall dome. And we've just last in October, we had full dome UK, which was this um, not-for-profit organization that, that sort of brings international 
dome is together. So I think that's that's kind of what I'm going to do is is try and play with stuff, making new work for those kind of spaces. Yeah. The kind of stuff that actually just running around trying to deliver outputs stops you from doing, which is just to try and be take control of some of those creative uh, potentials. Yes. Um, yeah. So that that's pretty good. We got we got a really cool. PhD program running in China. That's what I was just doing here before you, which was um, where, where we Chinese PhD students come over here and then spend eighteen months here and then go back to China. So it's very collaborative with three universities out there. That that's really quite exciting. It would be great when we can actually start moving around the world again. Yes. Um, and swimming, I think. Oh yes, uh, <laughs> yes. Your your sea swimming. I have got lots of friends that are doing sea swimming, and you being one of them. And I'm going. Mm, there's there's some signs here. If if I could live anywhere in the world, it would be close to the sea. But yeah, so you yeah. do your daily daily dip at Devil's My Point. Dip. Is that- <laughs> yeah, which is is getting very cold right now, but uh, quite liberating. Well done for you <laughs> doing that. <laughs> It's not, it's not really a swimming. I just kind of like float around. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm incredibly grateful for you uh, taking your time to have a discussion with me for my podcast. Um, it's, so it's many years on. <laughs> yeah, it's great that, um, yeah, I mean, I, I've stopped using Facebook these days, but it was really nice to see you pop up on Insta. And uh, yeah, that, uh, that, that kind of, yeah, the net- networking is not as good on Instagram as it is on Facebook, but there's there's a sense yeah. that just, just, seeing people's images is is quite it's actually quite it's more relaxing than the um certainly like the twittery kind of um, yeah the files spewing forward of people's opinions uh yeah yes that's uh yeah yeah so, so it's just visual opinions that if you yes. get if you get the hint then you'll you'll be taken along for the ride yeah and <laughs> maybe maybe Meta will be forced to split everything up, which would be nice. Just get it back again as a yeah, yeah. But uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, any other any other things? No. Um, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's it's interesting. We've you know, IDAT has been doing cool stuff for a while now. We people like B Arga Brigitte. If you knew B, she yes, was, yeah, yeah. She's. Uh, she just sort of left us last year. She got a PhD with us and then, then left us and is now at the uh, Munk Museum in um, in Oslo. Went back to Norway with a kid and uh, bloke. And it's kind of like, uh, hopefully we, we can start networking across the, those kind of works because we're doing some really cool stuff with the Tate, which um, yeah. is quite nice. And that, that actually is oddly because Aid Ward, um, you know, did a lot of work with us on – uh, looked after the service for IDAP for a while, and also did yes. um, did that production for Donald Rodney, who was uh, the guy I knew at the Slade um, artist who who sadly died in about ninety eight. And his um, the Tate are now buying, uh, acquiring, it's not buying it. They're acquiring uh, several of his works. And I was just there last week trying to fix a piece that we built in nineteen ninety down here on Mount Hedgecombe. Right. And that, that's really interesting because there's all this old, old tech, yeah. which uh, is really needs to be preserved in some way, um, conserved in some way. Yeah. And that is, that creates those, um, those large organizations like museums and uh, art galleries, a, a real problem. Uh, so mm. 
that that's been quite interesting looking at the electronics trying to repair the electronics on that and still retain the aesthetic of it um yeah it was the remember the autonomous wheelchair psalms which uh, yeah well with Guido Bugman that that was pretty cool that was 96 that has been acquired and they're trying to figure out what to do with you know which is the most important bit or bits is it, yeah. is it the algorithm itself the neural network that's working in that which which so so that is quite interesting actually and, and again I, archiving is so fetishized i don't want to go down that route but there is something about losing these things that happened during that kind of dot-com bubble yeah. period of the early 90s where um well, you know, the, the, the algorithms are gone, the codecs are gone. You, it, it's yeah. like Apple's just been destroying its own history for, for so yeah. long. I did that show last year, uh, which was kind of talking about Roy Ascot, and we had loads of old bits in there, which took forever to try and recover. There was a ZX, there was a, not a ZX one, there was a, an old Mac SE with a, a Tom York piece. That I bought off him back in 1990. That must have been, and that yeah. uh, was an old hypercard stack, which just you can't get it to run anymore. Hypercards! Oh my goodness! A single image, yeah. blast from the past. Okay, so that was animation for anyone that doesn't know hypercard. Kind of early days. It wasn't just animation. It was a database with animation. Oh. It was like uh, interactive stuff. Really cool. But it, so that's all like a piece of history which has disappeared. Yeah. So it, that, that's quite interesting to look at how you might make that more accessible. Yeah. Um, so that's probably something to do. <laughs> it feels quite sad, actually. You just kind of remind me of all that technology and we have moved on and we're such a kind of transient society that the nostalgia of that technology feels like it's it, – the importance is gone but it you know yeah. like we were saying it's the rehearsal it was the foundation of what there is now it is and i that is that's an, that is something to worry about i think for for mm. um, students now is that they the, the ease of which you can throw together some an arduino and bits and pieces to make things and just keep on re repeating stuff that was done historically without understanding the what it meant to build it in that time and how that might yes. have changed and the fact that you're just repeating things without that yeah. kind of critical context that that is something that you see a lot of nowadays um yeah so remembering that is really important and, and bringing that kind of culture yeah. maintaining that culture is, is really key yes oh that's quite a, a kind of a soft point to finish on um but it you know it, i think it it's really important to to honor and respect some of that stuff um but um yeah critical days yeah absolutely <laughs> and lots more to come <laughs> absolutely it's all just a rehearsal yeah <laughs> for the for the next greater and good thing that's coming along anyway mike it's been absolutely fabulous talking to you thank you so much for your time and uh yes thank you Lou. I'm sure that we'll catch up again soon when we're all able yeah. to travel around a bit more i hope you enjoyed this episode as much as i did recording it i look forward to having you listening in again for the next episode and if you would love to be a guest talking to me about your tech trials or successes, please do drop me a DM. <laughs>